So this morning, <clears throat> I want to talk to you uh, about Mad, Sad, Glad, the Gospel of Second Chance. And uh, somehow, um, when I come to a church, uh, just like this church here, people have the impression and the expectation that I'm going to give you a sermon on health. I won't. And that could make some of you mad, and some of you are sad, and I think most of you will be very glad. <laughs> you can relax. I'm not going to talk about health this morning, but in a way I do, but on a much, much deeper level, I think. But before I do this, I want to recognize the wonderful efforts that is being made by your church here and the leaders that are causing people to come to the Adventist church as a, as a reference point of going through all the confusion that we have in what is good health. The confusion about what is the right diet. There's a new diet every month coming up and people flock to it. Now it's the coconut oil diet. Folks, don't fall into all these traps. We can provide authoritative answers. And so much so that we can attract people to come even from Africa. Like this morning, I want you to, this gentleman to stand. Dr. Henderson. Dr. Sam, please stand. Please stand up. <clears throat> This gentleman arrived last night because he heard that Gosford had a special health emphasis weekend and some follow-up programs in the area further north of here. We are welcoming you to Gosford. Folks, the word is spreading. Gosford is health city. Are you interested in that? Are you wanting to help the people here, the leaders, to make this a, real, a reality? So this morning, I want to just give you a short talk on health so that you cannot say, well, we were very, very disappointed. We thought he would talk about health, and he didn't. So just to make sure that some of you that might be in a precarious position of becoming mad, I want to just satisfy your expectations. <clears throat> we are living in momentous times. Let me give you some, some ideas. 1970s, the dramatic changes in the American diet was spreading around the world. And when I talk about the American diet, I'm talking about the Australian diet. I talk about the British diet. I talk about the Western diet in general, a diet that is very highly engineered processed foods. It's a diet that has shifted from potatoes to potato chips, from brown rice to white rice from beans to burgers, from corn to corn chips, from water drinking to soda pop. It's a totally different diet that began to emerge in 1970 when people shifted from slow food to fast food. And they shifted from eating at home to eating out. It was the big change that took place in the 1970s. And this diet has been spreading around the world. I just came back from Fiji, and it looks just like America. Fast foods, processed foods everywhere, difficult to find fruits and vegetables, very difficult to find there. And 42% of the people are diabetics. 
I went to the hospital and they said, every eight hours we amputate a leg or two legs because of diabetes. We don't know what to do. I was in the Philippines two months ago and there too, the same situation. People are moving towards the Western diet and with that, we begin to realize that there are significant risks involved in affecting your lifespan and especially your health span and promoting these what we call chronic diseases. Chronic diseases are diseases that we have no answers for medically. We have no answer for heart disease. Bypass surgery saves you, maybe it creates some extra time perhaps, it can save a life sometimes, but it doesn't really cure the disease because it's coming back. High blood pressure, these medications don't cure the high blood pressure. You will be dying someday and you'll be on high blood pressure medication because it hasn't solved the problem. You have diabetes, you can take insulin, you can take these medications and you take them for life and when you die, you're still on insulin and still on these medications because they don't cure, they just buy you some time and maybe make you feel better. But you have a cure that comes in the form of what we call lifestyle medicine, the fastest growing medical specialty around the world where we now teach physicians something about nutrition and exercise and being a nice person and handling stress better. You know, these are the kind of things that are the natural remedies that are very powerful, much more powerful than medical things that we thought were the answer. Medications do not solve these chronic problems. All medications solve the problems when you have infectious diseases. Yeah, 10 days, everything is fine. But chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, arthritis, depression, all these things, you are in charge. You have to take more responsibility in working together with the healthcare system. <clears throat> and so we have seen a dramatic rise in the rate of chronic diseases. There's a small island called Nauru. Nauru? Small island. In the 1970s, 1960s, it was a little paradise. People lived happy lives there. They were lean. They lived their lives. They had lived this for many, many, many centuries. And then they discovered some special fertilizer. They discovered something that could be utilized and they brought in industrial processors and they took all the phosphates on the island and the islanders within five years became the richest people in the world making on the average $250,000 a year. They had nothing 10 years earlier. And now they had all the money they could use. They brought in some Australian chefs they brought in some American chefs. They began to live the good life. They invested in banks. They developed the Bank of Nauru here in Australia. And 15 years later, 48% of the people of Nauru were diabetics, premature death, obesity, and they began to leave the island. And today, as you know, Nauru has become a drop-off place for people that are less desirable by governments. The change in the lifestyle was directly related to the explosive growth of these Western diseases. <clears throat> 
So we're living in momentous times, and people everywhere begin to understand that we need to take responsibility more for our own lives. We are the chairman of the board of health. When it comes to these chronic diseases, we can do more for ourselves than any hospital, any doctor, any medication, any surgery. Now, 2006, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, famous man, wrote the book, The China Study, which has been consistently on the New York bestseller list. It is the book that intelligent people read. If you haven't read it, then... I'm sorry. Then in 2007, Dr. T. Dr. Esselstein appeared on the scene from the famous Cleveland Clinic. He wrote the book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. How? with a very simple diet of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. And he said, if it has a nutrition label, don't buy it too often. It's probably a modified food. Eat foods as it comes in nature. This man is not a Christian. This man is not a creationist. This man actually is a friend of mine. He's an atheist. But based on scientific evidence, he said, eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, not white flour, whole grains, and legumes. And we could add maybe a few nuts and maybe some avocado. Then you have two years later, you have uh, the, the, um, the film uh, uh, that appears, Forks Over Knives, which celebrates these two icons. The feature of the lives of Dr. Campbell and Dr. Esselstein. Now, when Hollywood gets involved in making health movies, you know it's important. Don't you get it? Now, how many of you have seen that film, Forks Over Nights? Let me see your hands. That's good. This is a very, very responsible audience. Why don't you show it again? Let everybody see it. It is the, probably one of the game-changing videos, films that you can see. You know what it's, what it's all about? Forks Over Knives. The point that is being made in a very dramatic film, the point that is made is that the dietary fork may be more important than the surgeon's knife when it comes to heart disease and some of these chronic diseases. Forks over knives. It's a must-to-be-seen film. And then you have the American former President Clinton he had bypass surgery after six years. The bypass is no longer functioning because that's what happens usually with bypass surgery. They don't last forever. Some of them last uh, two, three years. His was six years and it was closed up again. And now he had to face, what am I going to do next? Uh, Mr. President, we can do some stents. We can give you a couple of stents and that will open up the coronary arteries again and you're going to be fine. And the president was very smartly asking the question, how long will they last? And they said, well, actually, it's just a tune-up. Uh, you know, they close up again, but we can give you some more uh, tune-ups down the line. And he said, wait a minute. Didn't I hear about a film called Forks Over Knives? And he brought these two icons, these two men, Campbell and Esselstyn, uh, to his uh, place. And he said, can you help me to understand what must, must I do to take care of my arteries and the coronary arteries and the bypass that closed up again. And they said, Mr. President, 
I don't know if you can do it. Because you know, President Clinton was not known for being a paragon of purity. I'm talking about food now. I mean, he had, he had his bodyguards and he would run to the nearest fast food place and that was his fare. Uh, Mr. President, we don't know if you would be really interested in that. I want to do it. I mean, Chelsea is getting married and uh, I expect, we have to expect some grandchildren to come. I want to be around, Mr. President. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes. Mr. President, cut back on the oil, cut back on the sugar, cut back on the salt. Mr. President, no more foods with nutrition labels. Would you like to do this? Would you be willing to do this? Yes, sir. Clinton joined the movement of whole foods, plant-based. It's not enough to just leave out the meat. You have to also do something about these processed foods that have crept into our society. And then there is the story of Rick Warren. He's a minister, a mega church in California, 30,000 members in his church. He had the initiation, uh, special prayer for President uh, Obama's, uh, I almost said coronation, but you understand. And uh, uh, he has written many, many books. He's one of the best known authors when it comes to the purpose-driven church and so on and so forth. And the story is told that <clears throat> he found it very difficult to baptize people, he said I would baptize five, 10, 15 people at a time, one after another, and I noticed that when I come to number nine or 10 or 11, my arm would get weaker and weaker, and I was getting really scared that maybe sometime I may not be able to get that last person out of the watery grave, and they will stay under, and it's all gonna be in the press. Scandal, pastor, drain, pastor drowns church members. <laughs> Don't get baptized by him. He was very concerned about that, and so he thought, maybe I should uh, do some exercise program, and he said, maybe I should change my diet. After all, he said, I was 60 pounds overweight. Uh, that's about 25 kilos, and so he said, I looked at the good book, and I came across a story in the book of Daniel, first chapter, where Daniel is eating a very, very simple diet of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, probably some of these kind of foods, very simple foods, lots of water, and he said, I began to do this, and I noticed that my weight was coming down. I didn't come back on the volume of food, but I was cutting back on the calorie density of food. And then I thought to myself, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe I was getting weaker, but he said, I also noticed that the people I was baptizing were getting heavier every year. And he said, maybe it's the weight of these people. That's why I'm so such difficult in getting them out of the watery grave. And he, he proposed to his board, to his member, to his board, and he said, maybe we should have a special program patterned after Daniel 1. And he called this the Daniel Plan. 30,000 members, how many do you want to join me in the Daniel Plan? I already lost some weight. It's working. I know it's working. How many want you to join? And 18,000 people said, yes, pastor. 18,000 of 30,000 church members, yes, pastor. I think we all could lose some weight. We want to do it with you. At the end of one year, they had dropped 250,000 pounds. That's 
110,000 kgs. That's a lot of tons of weight. And the pastor got so excited, he said, ladies and gentlemen, church members, now we have much more room in our pews and we can bring more people into our evangelistic series. <laughs> so, that brings me to my topic, actually, and that is mad, sad, glad. I also noticed that in, in the bulletin that I was given that there is a special time limit, and it says, um, one, what is it, 12.35? Benediction. Uh, so I got the impression that the Holy Spirit withdraws here at 12.35. Is that true? <laughs> the stomachs begin to growl. Folks, I am not known for short sermons. So what shall we do? All right. Okay. All right. Ask for forgiveness afterwards? Okay. Okay. So I want to take you to my topic today is uh, mad, sad, glad. I'm not going to talk about health, but I want to talk to you about health on a, on a, on a much deeper level, and that is health does not spring forth by being dictated to people. As of tomorrow, no more M&Ms. As of tomorrow, no more Oreos. It doesn't work. Health is something that has to come within in response to understanding. It comes from within the heart and the mind where you begin to realize a value restructuring. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about the importance of understanding who our CEO is. When the CEO changed, the, the, the coach of the Los Angeles Kings hockey team, they hadn't won anything in 31 years. They had a new coach. The next year, they became national hockey champion. Why? Because they had a new coach with new values that could inspire and motivate people, players, to do this. When Hewlett Packard had a new coach, all of a sudden, the values on Wall Street Journal climbed and climbed and climbed. What kind of a CEO do you and I have when it comes to our Christian shares? What is your image of the kind of God that we have as our CEO? Could that image affect what we're gonna do, how we act? The kind of God that we begin to understand is creator God and recreator. Once we really understand that love, could it be that we respond differently to the opportunities in living a healthier lifestyle and living a longer life and to be functionally active for our community? Could that be? I see a very strong response from you. Could that be? Well, let me talk to you about this a little bit. I want to talk to you about the prodigal son. You all know the story. Uh, prodigal actually means ex extravagant, wasteful. There's a story about an extravagant, wasteful son. It's a parable that is found in Luke 15. And Jesus now is speaking increasingly in parables. What are parables? Parables are illustrations that are taken out of the school of life with heavenly meaning. And Jesus uses the parable to illustrate things that the average simple shepherd can understand 
and that will still provide opportunity for theologians 2,000 years later to extract the deeper meaning of Jesus' masterful parables. There was no greater master in telling stories than Jesus. And so Jesus now realizes that he only has about three more months to live. And Jesus feels the burden of how can I reach the people? How can I tell them what my purpose of life will have been in just a few months? My purpose has been to glorify the Father. I have known him from the beginning of the world. I was with him. I know him. He's a good God. And yet, how can I get the message across to the people? And so Jesus is increasingly concerned. His time is running out. His ministry is coming to an end. And he says, what can I really do? And he begins to tell these stories. You see, God the Father had received bad news for, for, for decades, for centuries, for thousands of years. God the Father had become uh, known, known as a, a capricious God, a bloodthirsty God. You have to deliver all these thousands of uh, sacrifices. This kind of a God was no longer seen as the good, loving Father, but he was seen as a bloodthirsty tyrant. He was seen as the ultimate, ever-present, extreme vigilante, meeting out justice, looking for those who did wrong and zapping them with his law. That was a picture of God when Jesus came. Darkness. Darkness. Distorted impressions, pictures of God the Father. No longer that concerned, loving Father, now seen as a bloodthirsty, arbitrary God, a tyrant. And then, in the fullness of time, comes Jesus. Jesus always comes when it's dark in our lives. He's always there, ever so gently knocking, wooing us. Jesus always comes in the fullness of time. And as he moves towards the end of his life and ministry, we see him talking increasingly in parables, trying to reach the people everywhere. And so we go to Luke 15, and you find these famous, well-known parables there. There are three parables. The first one is uh, about a shepherd who had 100 sheep, 99 sheep are safe, one is lost, and the good shepherd leaves the 99 and pursues that one sheep that is lost. And, when he, and then when he, he says in his parable, and when, when he arrived, when the shepherd arrived, would he not then call all together all of his friends and neighbors to rejoice? Because the lost sheep was found. And then Jesus said, that's exactly how it is. When someone turns around that has lost contact with God and reconnects to the new life in him, all heaven rejoices and the angels throw a party in heaven for one sinner that returns. And then Jesus says, well, in the same way, there's another illustration here. A woman has 10 valuable silver coins. She loses one. And then Jesus says, wouldn't she light a lamp and look in every corner of the house and sweep every nook and cranny until she finds it? And then, won't she call in her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her? And he says, count on it. That's a kind of what happens next the angels will throw a party in heaven 
for that one person that has turned around. And then Jesus said, in the same way, there's a further illustration for you that I want to tell you. And this is a story, and it starts with this. A man had two sons. When the younger son told his father, I want my share of my estate. Now, instead of waiting until you die, his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, just think about this. This is a fairly affluent, yeah, thank you. This is a fairly affluent home, right? The family is doing very well. The father is uh, a city councillor. Uh, the mother is the chief librarian, probably uh, in, the, in the local uh, library. The son grows up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He has everything he wants and more than he needs. And he has a father that really cares about him. He has a mother that really cares about him. But he is very, very ambivalent about his house, about his family, about the values. Because you see, on one hand, the father takes these sons and he teaches them the principles of success, how to make a living. And he says, if it is to be, it has to be me. What did I say? If it has to be, it has to be. That is responsible living. That means taking responsible care. It's not a dream world anymore. To live is duty. To live is serving others. To live is to give. So he extols these principles of material success. But then he balances this with the concept of the principles of significance. Principles of significance. And he points out that to live really is to be of service to others, to make life easier for other people, to be respected, to do what has to be done, to do what will help someone else, brighten the path of someone else. The principles of materialism, of successful living, and the principle of significant living. The son listens, the son tries to understand, but somehow after a while, he begins to realize um, he's going to the university, he's 18 years of age, and he said, how come my classmates all drive cars and I have to drive a bicycle? How come I have to be at home at nine o'clock in the evening when it's curfew time for me? That's when the parties begin. Why is my father ruining, ruining my life? He's, he is micro-dictating everything to me. I need to be free. I need to live my own life. I need to learn from my own mistakes that I make. I need to be in charge of my life. And he says, Dad, he's charged into the library of his dad after giving some thought to this and becoming increasingly embittered about the shackles that he feels the father puts on this, on this boy. And that has been the problem of generations, generations all the time. I remember our son, you know, he comes home one time and he has a mohawk. And he's blonde, he's, he's dark hair, but all of a sudden he's blonde. And I want to really pounce on him. And my wife said, men, listen to your wives. She said, it, it's a, just. I don't say anything. Three months later, Byron comes to me and he says, Dad, did you notice? <laughs> did you notice my mohawk and my blonde hair? How do you like it? 
He said, Dad, you haven't said anything about it. And then he said, you know, Dad, you know, I'm going to be in dental school in a few weeks at Loma Linda, and this is my last chance that I can ever try what it looks like to have a mohawk and blonde hair. I'm so amazed that you tolerated me. I didn't say anything that it was my wife that influenced me, but I took all the credit to myself for being, <laughs> for being so tolerant. Because, you know, this is sort of, you try your wings out when you're young. Don't become reactive like I was going to be, but emulate more my wife's wisdom. Okay. So you have this young man. He is very ambivalent now about his home, and he wants to get out. He wants to have freedom. And so he storms into his father's uh, uh, library, and he says, Dad, I need to get out. Uh, I mean, imagine the audacity, the cheekiness of this kid, 18 years of age, telling his father, get out of my way. I want my money now. You're in my way of what I want to accomplish. Get out of my way. I am going to be in charge now. Give me what I have coming. You know, that father could have said, very nice try, Sonny. Get out of here. Jewish law was very clear. He could have said, look, Sonny, <laughs> nice try, but first I have to go, then mother has to go, and then you also have to remember, there's an older brother here, he's next in line, and then you come. But this father was a very wise man because he had observed over time the drifting of his son towards different value structures. He was no longer quite the son that he thought he had raised. He had changed. The environment that he was in, the academic environment, the peers, all had left a mark and tracks on his life. And so this father recognized, sometimes you have to let go. You have to let young people understand what life is really all about. Son, you really know what life is all about? The door will always be open, but you're making, I think, a pretty drastic decision. Dad, I understand, nothing personal. Give me the money, I want to get out of here. The father calls in the real estate appraiser, the attorneys, and uh, the next step is some papers are signed. He calls his son in. He turns the papers over to the son. The son now has the papers. All he has to do now is three things. Number one, he goes to the bank and he cashes in the papers for cash. Now he has the money. Now he has what he wants. There's one more thing he has to do. He has to go to the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, to get a license. He's 18 years of age. He gets a license. There's one more thing to do. He has to go to the BMW dealership and get that blue minted Z4 sports car. When he has that, he has no longer trouble with attracting girls. It's very easy. He has lots of friends all of a sudden. I mean, they're not really friends. They're just sort of parasites. They're opportunistic people. They're just coming to take what he has. And then take a look what Jesus says in the story here. <clears throat> And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his son. And a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land and there wasted all his money on parties and prostitutes in riotous living. I mean, just imagine, he wouldn't even stay at home. 
He wanted to stay away. He wanted to be away from the father's home as far away as possible. I want to have total control over my life. I don't want anyone to give any reports coming back to the father, to the mother. I'm going to do what I want to do. Don't bother me. And there it is. It's all there. Proms, parties, easy girls. And he has no trouble having lots of friends around him until, and then Jesus says, about the time his money was gone, a great famine swept over land and he began to starve. See what happened? He cannot find a job. The money is gone. He's penniless. His Z4 sports car is impounded. I mean, this is a big blow to this young man. And uh, the friends leave the ship like the rats on a sinking boat. They're gone. He's all by himself. Friends are those people who stick by your side when the going gets rough. And they listen. They just listen. They're there to support. About the time his money was gone, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. Just, you get the picture? He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have job skills. He has been a student all these years. And now he doesn't know what to do. And on top of that, you have a famine that spreads over the land, an economic depression. Jobs are hard to find. <clears throat> and he is broke, and he is broken. And he finds a job with a non-Jewish farmer. I know it's a non-Jewish farmer because Jewish farmers would never have pigs. Pigs are not favorite animals among the Jewish in the concept of a Jewish person. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't want to be seen in the shadow of a pig in those days because it was just not the right thing to do. Uh, it was the, the least appreciated animal. <clears throat> I mean, these were despicable animals. And he now has the task of taking care of these kind of animals that Jesus describes in his story. It's the ultimate insult to this one so arrogant hulk of a young man. Dad, I want it now. Get out of my way. And now taking care of pigs. Pigs. Swine. He's hungry. He's starving. The Bible says, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. And the boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the swine looked good to him. And he was jealous of the pods that he was feeding the pigs. And no one gave him anything. There's another story like this. He too is about 18 years of age. And he comes to his father and he says, Dad, Listen, nothing personal, but I need to get out of this home here. I need to uh, live a life on my terms. Dad, let me go. And the father takes him down, and they have a chat, and the father says, son, you don't really quite know what life is all about. It's not what you think it is. It's not just a dream that you can chase it. It's more than that. You have to have skills. You have discipline. You have to move uh, decisively and purposefully forward. Son, dad, please let me go. I need to go. The mother joins. 
and she cries and he says, listen, nothing personal, I need to go. And the mother says, look, we have the door, the back door, we have a mat there, underneath the mat, we'll have a key for you. When you come back, the door is always open. Unconditional love. And just in case uh, you are not quite so sure, when you come around the bend in the road, in the front lawn, there's that tree. You know that tree, yes. We'll have a yellow ribbon on the tree so you know the key is still there. We're still looking for you. The boy lives, lives it up. Wine, women, song, and drugs. And five years later, he's burned out. And he says, I remember my mom and dad. I wonder if that's, that yellow ribbon is still in the tree. And he makes his way around the bend in the road. And there he sees a tree laden with yellow and orange ribbons. He comes to the back door. And there is the key. And he opens the door, and then Billy Graham welcomes his son, Franklin Graham, the great evangelist. And Franklin Graham takes over the ministry of his father. Father, I didn't understand. I'm so grateful for what you and mom have done, keeping the door open. <clears throat> And then in verse 17, you find this verse. When he finally came to a census, he said to himself, the turnaround begins. Here's my question to you. How does a person come to a census? What has to happen? Help me. You hit bottom. What else happens? You begin to realize that what you have tried to do, it's not working. I got to change. I have to find new ways. I have to do a turnaround. And he said to himself, when the light turned on finally, when he began to see what happened, he remembers. He remembers. He remembers his parents. He remembers his mother. Yeah, mom used to read me Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories every night. She was always there for me. My wife, regardless of how busy she was, every night, 15 minutes for Carmen, 15 minutes minimum for Carmen, for Byron. Always there, imprinting on the brain of the young ones. You don't forget. Oh, as we get older, our short-term memory begins to fail more and more and more. But you remember what happened 50, 60, 70 years ago. You remember. It's imprinted. And he begins to think about it. He begins to think. And he says to himself, at home even the servants have food enough to eat. And here I am dying of hunger. He remembers plenty of food. He remembers a comfortable home. He remembers many servants. He remembers all of his advantages. And he remembers his father. A good father. Yeah. He tried to teach me the principles of success. If it is to be, it has to be me. I remember my father talking to me about the principles of significance. To live is to give, reaching out to others. The true purpose of education is not just to make a good living, but to make a life. That the ultimate uh, purpose of education is to become better equipped to be of greater service to others. 
And he begins to think about this. <clears throat> and then the Bible says, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. He thinks that he can repay his father what he has taken away from the father. It will never happen that way. And then the Bible, here again, here comes a game changer. Jesus says, so he got up. He got up. Three words. I mean, you can do all the dreaming you want. Oh, we're going to have a chip program one of these days here. We have a, going to be a two chip programs every year. Yes, we're doing fairly well, but we're going to have a few more. And some of you are sitting here and you say, well, I should maybe join one of these chip programs, this complete health improvement program that is run by Sanitarium uh, Health and Living. Health and well-being. Yes. It's a program that was put together in a renewed, uh, dressed-up fashion some eight, nine years ago. A program that I sort of developed some 35 years ago, but now it was no longer the baby with ruffled suits. Now it looks really perfect. Oh, they put lots of money into this. And uh, you're sitting here, and you're wondering, yeah, you know, I have those extra pounds. Maybe I should go into the chip program. You're running a corporation, and you're thinking, maybe I should run, make it available to my employees. I can help my employees. It's going to help my bottom line, and it's making them healthier people. I'm serving the people that I'm employing. Or maybe uh, your wife has been on your case for some time to get that garage cleared out. Oh, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. No, it has been now three months and six months and nine months and nothing has been done and she is beginning to lose trust in your promises. Isn't that what happens? Nothing happens until you put it on your calendar and you say, it's this kind of a Sunday, I'm going to clean out the garage. As a matter of fact, there's so much junk there, I probably need three or four Sundays in a row. I mean, I'm coming from Germany, and in Germany, we never put junk into the garage. We always put the car there because the car is the most precious thing that we have. That's what the car belongs to. In America, it's just the opposite. The car is set outside, and the weather's pounding the car, but you have everything well. The junk sits safely in the garage. It doesn't make any sense to me, but that's what we do. Don't copy the Americans. And so sometimes we think, yeah, you know, my, my friend just died of a heart attack. He was only 57 years of age. He looked so good. How did that happen? They've talked about it in the CHIP program. They've talked about it in the church. Uh, they talked about heart disease, something that happens, begins when you're born. And it gradually evolves. And when these arteries get filled with cholesterol and fats and calcium, they become narrowed, and then only it takes a blood clot to stop the blood flow to your heart, and your heart muscle dies from asphyxiation. It turns blue. It's gone. 911. What do you call here? What's the emergency number in Australia? Six zero. Can you be a little clearer, please? Zero zero zero. Okay, triple zero. Okay. 
call. Zero, zero. This is not the time to manipulate things and think I can save myself with this and this and that. Three zeros, call immediately, get in there, make sure that they take care of you immediately because it's a life-threatening situation. But why didn't you come to the CHIP program? They would have taught you all of these things. They would have dramatically reduced the likelihood of this attack. Let's take a look here at this video here. So he got up. Could we perhaps learn from this young man? He got up. He took action. This is a physician friend of mine in this video here. He talks about the idea that he has a patient that he's working up for the next day surgery. And he draws the blood and he looks at the blood and the blood is very, very creamy, uh, fatty. And he says, my goodness. And he goes back to the patient and he says, what did you eat yesterday? What did you have for your last meal? And he said, well, I had my uh, cheeseburger and my ice cream. And the physician then says, oh, that's what I'm seeing right now in the blood that's making it so milky, so occult that I can no longer see the transparent that I usually see. The fats from the ice cream, from the meat, have all seeped into the bloodstream. And when you do this year after year for decades, then they become narrowed down. The lumen changes in its size. And then suddenly you have a blood clot. And if it happens up here, then you have to worry about stroke. If it happens here on the corner arteries, then you have to worry about a heart attack. If it happens down for the men in the penile arteries, then you have impotence. I mean, it's an amazing situation of how many people are now uh, suffering from erectile dysfunction and they're, they're in their 50s and 60 years of age. Did you see what, what I saw? Do you see that? Do you see what they pulled out? This is the inner sheathing that is collecting all the cholesterol and the calcium and the fats and it causes the lumen to change, to become narrowed down more and more and more. And when you're 70% narrowed, then you usually, you might have the first sign that you're in trouble with the heart. That's when you develop something we call angina pectoris. And you sit down and you relax and it's okay. It's not a heart attack. But it's oftentimes the forerunner that something is going to happen that could be very life-threatening. Many people live with 80-90% narrowing and they don't have the benefit of getting that angina attack to let them know, you are in serious trouble, you're on the road down the hill. Because for 40% of the people with heart disease, the f for 40% of the people, the first sign of heart disease, the first sign of heart disease is sudden death. There's not much you can do after that. It's over. He got up. Maybe you should think about that and maybe take a look at the CHIP program and be sort of arm yourself, understand, and make a few changes. You don't have to become a vegan. You don't have to become an extremist. You don't have anybody breathing down your neck. You can't eat this anymore and this anymore. No, it's a program that will help you to make choices depending on what your need is and what you perceive is what you want to accomplish. We have young people and if they say, well, we don't really want to become a vegan, that's all perfectly fine. You do what you think is best for you. If you have a person with a heart attack, you better be very, very clear from, a, from a, a medical point of view. If you're here, you have to go all the way immediately. You cannot play around with things anymore. 
If you're diagnosed with diabetes, you cannot say, well, I'm just going to make a few changes like the uh, Diabetic Association recommends. It's not going to do it. You cannot reverse this disease unless you really go from here to here. And that's what Chip is teaching you. You become the charge person. You are the CEO. You decide what you want to do. Don't let anybody ever tell you, you have to do this and this and this and this and be these radical, what do you call these, jackhammers? No, they split the church. They say, we are first class Adventists and you are only, you're still on the Egyptian flesh pots. No, no, we learn together and we move forward together. Everybody at his own speed. We're climbing the mountain. We have a goal, some slower, some faster. So he got up. And as we're moving now towards the end of the story, and while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming, his heart pounding, and was filled with loving pity, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is a very unusual story here, because in the Jewish economy, uh, a, a father, the culture pro, 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 forbid, forbid an, an, a dignified man, like this, a Jewish man, to jump off his porch, to run. He was a man of dignity. This father was different. I mean, you know what happened there, right? When this young man left, the father's heart was torn apart. His DNA was on that son's body too. My son, my son. And every day he would come to the porch and he would take his binoculars and he would scan the horizon day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And now the old man had become an old man. Arthritis in his knees. He could hardly walk anymore. Legally blind. And even so, he would talk to the servants, please bring me the binoculars. And they put him on the chair and they lift him on the porch, and there he scans the binoculars, please. He has Alzheimer's. He's out of it. He can no longer switch on. It's over. Don't you understand? Give me the binoculars. You see, you don't understand. It's not the vision that he's concerned about. It's the vision of the heart. And when you have the vision of the heart as a father, it's always 20-20. Are you with me there? Oh, give me the binoculars. And he sees, and he looks. And he sees that little bit of humanity, pitiful as it is, coming around the corner of the street. No shirt on, no sandals on, the ring is gone. And as he comes closer, he begins to smell because he has lived with the pigs too long. And this father, he doesn't care about any of these things. He doesn't think about, what did he do with all the money that, that he took from me? Nothing like this. He has only one thought, my son, my son, he is there. And he runs off the porch. He's not supposed to do this. And he forgets about his arthritis. And he runs to, to the son and he embraces him. And my son, my son, dead alive again. Folks, this is what Jesus is trying to do in this parable. He's trying to help us to understand that the father responds to the riotous living of his son with riotous loving. That's the message. 
You can't outdo this father. He's there. He's always on the lookout for you and for me. He's always gently knocking. Let me close with a few remarks that I picked up from some uh, theological books. Since I'm not a theologian, I'm not a preacher, I just love the Lord. I just want to help people. My CHIP program has always been a ministry when I developed this 35 years ago. A ministry to help people to have clearer minds to understand the issues in the great controversy and the process also become healthy. And as they become healthy, they become very grateful. And people then, in response to that loving kindness, they begin to inquire about the church. They begin to inquire, why do you do what you do? Why do you make it available as a ministry when it could be a big business? Why? In Wichita, out of 1,000 CHIP graduates, 86 became members of the church. And these were affluent people by and large, intelligent people that already knew that health was a big issue. They knew that they had to, to streamline their diet and lifestyle. They just didn't know how to do it. And CHIP came along and said, here's the road plan. Here's the blueprint. 19 presentations. And we have monthly follow-up programs. We'll stand by you. We support you. Oh, yes, you will fall off the wagon. It's okay. We stand by you. No condemnation. The love of God. And so here are some of the theological implications. Jesus talks about three parables. The first one was about the good shepherd. The second one was about the woman who loses that valuable coin. And the third one is about the loving, no, the wasteful son. And what emerges here is actually the father emerges as the prodigal in the story, the wasteful father who wastes, not really wastes, but he is very generous with his love, extravagant with his love to the one that, has, that deserves better. Not as well, right? Right? And so here we see these three parables. And with each one, Jesus stresses the divine initiative in the saving of the lost. God always goes where the sinner is. God does not wait for human repentance and reformation. Then I will give you mercy. No, 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 no. God is just the opposite. His mercy is extended joyfully and lavishly prior to any moral transformation. Oh, that's totally contrary to what we want to do as humans. Let me first improve my lifestyle, and then I can pray again. When it's darkest, go back where you saw the last, the light, the light, the light last. Go back where you had the experience in being close to God. Forgiveness always precedes human repentance. That's the story. Forgiveness precedes always human repentance. Repentance always is the acceptance of the divine gift. It's not the cause of the divine initiative, but it's in the opposite. Repentance is the acceptance of the divine gift. The story of a loving father. The story of the prodigal God. Beautiful, majestic, and actually, the story is about us. 
because we too wander away. And God is there on his porch and he's looking over the scene and he says, I'm looking for you. I'm waiting for you. I have ribbons all over the trees. The key is waiting at the back door. We can hardly wait for you to open the door of your heart and come and let me in. This is the kind of God that we have. Let me close with uh, a little story. Uh, this is now Isaiah 49:16. It says, yeah, I have inscribed your name upon the palm of my hand and you are ever before me. I'm on an airplane. A young man sits next to me. His tattoos all over him. I don't happen to like tattoos. Some people do. I don't. And so I think to myself, what can I really talk to this young man about? How can I make, a, make my trip a little bit shorter? And I turn to him and I say, you have unbelievable tattoos. Different colors. I mean, how did you get this done? Is this painful? How much does it cost? How many times can you sit for these? How long does it take? Uh, what do they use to get these different colors? Is it ink? What happens? Is it dangerous? Can it become infected? I'm becoming sort of a mini expert on, if you have any questions, see me. <laughs> and he is in his element. I mean, he just loves to tell the story. The, the, the flight is pretty short because of the engagement that we have there. And then I noticed on his arm there is a name, a, a, a lady's name. I said, oh, I see uh, your wife? No, 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 no. Oh, your flame? Uh, no, 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 no. An extinguished flame. Oh, a former girlfriend? Yeah. Oh. Can you get it erased? No. Well, it's dangerous, it's difficult, you have scars. It's probably forever. Oh. Are you in any relationship right now? He says, yeah, I am. I have this new girlfriend. And I said, what do you do about this name? Oh, I wear long sleeve shirts. <laughs> but I said, this, these shirts probably come down someday, wouldn't they? And he says, I hope so. <laughs> and then I'll tell her. And God says, in this special translation here, this is the Living Bible paraphrased. It says here in Isaiah 49:16. See, I have tattooed your name upon the palm of my hand, and your name is always before me. Folks, this is the kind of God that Jesus describes as the prodigal father. And your name is tattooed on the palms of my hand. And the Father and I, we are one. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, as we think about how you have come into our lives, how you have redeemed us, and first you have created us, and now you want to take us home. We pray that we recognize that you're waiting on the porch. That the issue is not to seek moral reformation, but to seek out the prodigal father.
who is waiting on the porch. Help us to see your goodness and help us to feel empowered to reach out to do that which would help us to be of greater service to you. He got up. Help us too to make new decisions, to take new actions in harmony with your will. In Jesus' name, amen.